This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All change, please. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week it's two up top. That means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Matthew. So Matthew, how have you been since we last spoke? Um, I've been very good. Or I should say a, bon- a buongiorno to you, Daniel, after the news that has emerged this week. Um, uh, well, the last uh, couple of hours, as it were. Yeah, I've been pretty good. Uh, Fulham continuing their march. Um, the march up the championship. Still only in second place, but I'm sure we'll get top spot eventually. So yeah, everything's grand in my world. Glassy Matthew, and I guess ciao to Max. Max, how are you, my friend? How have you been this past seven days? Yeah, uh, absolutely wonderful since the result of the weekend. So I'm looking forward to, to spending 59 minutes and 30 <laughs> seconds talking about that. <laughs> and the other 30 seconds will be about Conte. He wishes. Now, there's certainly going to be a lot of time for Palace towards the front of the show, but there is one more important topic to lead the show. Before we do all of that, though, let's do those social media bits. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Dan Tracy, nice 83. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce we're now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network, that being Sports Social. So check out the URL and all the links posted throughout the week on the Real Football Pod account. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. Also, I need to mention my content partner, that being betting.com. For all the tips and predictions you'll ever need, go to that website. And the easiest way to find all the links is by going to linktree slash realfootballcast. Put a dot between the R and the E. You get 10 podcast platforms to choose from. It's never been easier to listen to this show. Right, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? If we recorded this episode on Sunday... 
we'd be going straight to Max, no doubt about that. Unfortunately, a certain Antonio Conte has taken top billing. And Matthew, after the events of Tottenham versus Manchester United on Saturday, it shows that football continues to move in very mysterious ways. It does. And I know that Nuno was, you know, it was obvious that Nuno was under some sort of pressure. You know, the fact that it, the whole game was called El Sakico. I'm stunning how football Twitter managed to get that one right. Um, for so, yeah, it did, did show there was, and the, the performance that they put in as well. I think if it had been like a 1 0 last minute loss via a dodgy deflection or a VAR thing gone wrong. Maybe it would have saved him, but just the general performance. I mean, I mean, this was a game I listened to. Um, I listened to on the radio because I was coming back from work, but then watched the highlights of match today. And just the way that it all sort of came about, you know, listening on the radio, the booze with the um, the Lucas Morris substitution, it just gave a little sense of there's no way he's coming. He's coming back from here. And I know there were, you know, there were. Uh, reports come out that night, you know, that discussions were going to be had and you thought maybe he might, you know, one more game before the international break so he can save himself. And then then if it doesn't work out, then he might. But no, I, th I think in the end, I'm not going to say it was the right decision because I do still think Nuno deserved a little bit more time. But I think you can sort of under you can understand why they would have done it just because of the, the demands that would have been on him from the start of the year. Now, Max, from a football result point of view... It's a celebration for United. It's pressure off the shoulders of Oli, but we can guarantee we'll be having the same similar topic of debate three, four weeks down the line when it all goes tits up again. So have United, in a sense, inadvertently shot themselves in the foot? Because if and when the time they need to get rid of Solskjaer, that's one less world-class candidate they can now call upon. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, isn't it? That Oli winning might have you know, given uh, Conte to, to Tottenham as opposed to, you know, if United have lost 3-0, um, they might have, that might have given Nuno a bit of a stay of execution and United might have pulled the trigger and, and got Conte in. And obviously, long term, I think Conte is a better manager than, than both of those two. And so, you know, Tottenham might be kind of rubbing their hands in a way that that result kind of forced the hand of the board um, and then, and then obviously, and then obviously, Conte's come in because you're right. Um, you know, United did deservedly win that game, but you know, as much as I, I want to give credit to United, Spurs were pretty abject in that game, and I don't think United really got out of first or second gear. You know, they kind of cruised to that victory um, through some kind of brilliant individual skill from their attacking players. You know, really nice. Um, volley from uh, Ronaldo and then obviously Ronaldo linking up with Cavani and things like that. Ronaldo and Cavani aren't going to be able to play every game. They're not going to score screamers like that every game, you wouldn't think. So in a way, I feel like Solskjaer is just kind of kicking the can down the road. But I mean, look, to be fair to him, uh, he did need, Ole did need uh, an immediate drastic improvement in performance and result. And he got both of them. So fair play, you know, he has turned it round at least for that Spurs game. But you know, you have to view it in the context of how bad Spurs were. So I don't want to say, well, Ole's safe now. You know, he's going to be able to stay another three months because, you know, in two weeks we might be talking about another four-goal loss to to like Brighton or something. And and so, you know, I, I I'm not going to say like a crisis around the corner at United, but that it's very very early to say, oh right, well they're completely fine now. Now that they've beaten a very poor Tottenham. But yeah, as you say, it's really really interesting that dynamic. Because Conte and Zidane are like the two, well, formerly Conte, but 
before Spurs appointed him, Conte and Zidane were the two probably like world-class managers who are free agent. And now if United lose their next three and sack Ole, it's pretty much Zidane or no one for them. Well, that's right. The world-class options are running thing. And Matthew, when it comes to Tottenham, they've snared another one. So for all their faults over the last couple of years... Pochettino was an appointment which he worked his way up the hierarchy, but he ended up as a world-class manager. You've had Mourinho, you've now got Conte. Does this say a lot about the stature, or is this a move steeped in desperation when you consider that the wage is quite all eye-watering that he'll receive Conte, and it's only an 18-month contract to start with? Yeah, I think it, it, it it's 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 a show-me sort of contract in in the way that it's done. You know, they wanted they want to see some level of. I'd, I'd imagine there would be some level of you know, clause in there that if we don't see enough progress in the next six months, um, then they may be able to get rid of them. No, with just uh, with just a year remaining. But I do think it is probably you know the best. It is probably a you know a smart decision to make, basically because of the amount that they're going to have to be paying out on uh, compensation. I imagine they're still paying someone Mourinho. They're, they're bound to be paying. It was eight million, I think I saw for for Nuno. So they probably don't have enough. Going around to to spend you know willy nilly on 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 a, new, on a new manager, but I think Kante is probably someone that within that eighteen months and you know if they're in the top in the, if they're in the top four come March of two thousand twenty three if I've done my maths on this right yeah then they might then they might think okay there's enough progress yes there's you know three months left on the deal but we've seen that there is enough going on here we trust you to go forward so they'll extend it in there so I think it's I think it is probably the smart thing to do and I think Conte will make some will make some big changes he does have that winner's mentality as it were and I think you know Spurs are still in um are still in three cup competitions like the FA Cup League Cup and uh, Europa Conference League yep. so there's a chance for silverware there and he might be able to just take him you know take him over the edge, edge in some of them so I think it is a smart appointment and probably in terms of the contract probably you know works out for both sides well Max in terms of Tottenham's season is it salvageable I mean they've not had a great start but it's been weird in the sense it's five wins five losses they're not drawing matches so it's not that bad in terms of points. Sometimes when you sort of draw more matches than losses, it doesn't actually kind of do you many favours. So it's kind of so one way or the other that there's still scope to kick on up into the top six, dare I even say the top four. But when you think of the 18 months, he hasn't really got time to waste at the same time. It's no good saying, okay, well, we'll start this reboot next season because that's six of that 18 gone. So is it really a case of pressing that button and turbocharging Tottenham up the table? Um, yeah, yeah. So you're right. The 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 draws have have not, you know, in the Premier League, you really need wins to kind of push yourself up the table. As Palace have found, because we've drawn six of our ten games, and we're you know only two points clear of seventeenth, despite us actually playing pretty well in a lot of the games. Whereas, as you say, Tottenham, you know, they, they just don't draw games. Either they they lose or they win. And so, you know, they're only five points off the off the top four. They're only two points off the European places, which is not the worst position to be in. I, I don't think it was necessarily the results, but but the performances that did for Nuno. But you're right. I I don't like it when un, when uh, clubs say, oh, well, you know, the managers joined mid-season, so this season's kind of a write-off. Obviously, there is going to be a period of adaptation, and you know, bedding in, getting used to the new managers, training. And you know, way of um, way of doing things around the club. Could probably sign some new players in January. You know, that will take a bit of getting used to. So of course, there's some there's an adaptation period, and I don't want to under understate that. But at the same time, you know, 
there's only 10 games gone this season. He's still got 28 left this season to make an impact. It is not a write-off already. It's early in the season. You know, it's what, like we're not even into December yet. So there's definitely enough time and space for, for, for Conte to have an effect this season. And, you know, I don't think Tottenham are going to say we expect Champions League football and, you know, brilliant, free-flowing, attacking, entertaining football, you know, by the by March or whatever. But they are going to have certain expectations given the profile that Conte has and given the wage demands that he undoubtedly has. They are going to expect an uptick in terms of performance and in results. And, you know, like I say, they're not going to set their goals way, way, way too high, at least this season. You know, maybe next season they, they might they might reassess those. But this season, there's definitely going to be some ambition to, to improve and at least have a go at qualifying for Europe, be that Europa League, if not maybe Champions League. Um, and as, as Matthew mentioned, um, getting getting, you know, a, a reasonable way into the domestic cup competitions and kind of showing your 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 metal in those knockout games. That is, I think, what Spurs will have their their, their targets on. Now, Matthew, Harry Kane, one goal. I think it's nine Premier League appearances. He got off the mark against Newcastle, but he's almost reverted to type for the season in the games that have followed. Can Conte awaken him from such a slumber? I think I think he can, and I think it's going to be more of a a mentality thing. You know, I'll admit I don't. No, whilst you know Conte's been in the Premier, I have I'm not the kind of guy to analyse specifically something like that. Like I've no idea. Did he manage to revolutionise any Chelsea centre forwards when he was out there? You know, it's not like, um, like like Jose Mourinho to an extent with the style he played, revolutionised Son and Kane, who were very good, but then were world class together under Mourinho sort of thing. I don't know whether or not Conte has that same effect with um with other players. He did it with Lukaku um, at Inter. The Carquid like... Inter is that is that the only example that yeah, we can I think really so. go off? Exactly. So I'm not. I don't know if it's like if there's anything that he can teach Harry Kane to do it or sort of build a style. I think it is going to be more of the the, the uh, as I said the mentality and the and the mindset behind it and the you know the, the man management. As well, I think that I think he's going to get the best out of the team, and then as a result, that might get the best out of you know get the best out of the players. You know, if it means that Lucas Moore is you know firing at ten percent better, then you know one then you know he'll complete fifty percent of his crosses rather than forty percent, and Harry Kane will get on the end of them sort of thing. So I don't think it's going to be anything specific that ha- will will work with Harry Kane, but I think he'll you know. Uh, a, a rising tide lifts all boats, sort of thing. That sort of analysis. I think once he gets the whole team going, then Kane will benefit indirectly as a result. I'll take your point there. At the same time, Max, there's no doubt that Conte is ruthless when it comes to playing personnel. If you're not in favour, you're out or frozen out at the very least. Is this going to finally accelerate the transition process that Tottenham have found themselves caught in the last couple of years? Because he'll look at players and think, I don't want them, get them out. I don't care what the cost is in terms of depreciation on transfer values, get him out the door, let's get this squad rejuvenised. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's interesting because um, he, de- he definitely does have his favourites and the, actually the squad that won the title with Inter um, last season, um, it, was, it was actually a pretty small squad, like it was a very small core group of players that he used, of, of trusted players. Um, at the same time, I don't think... Um, Inter had a massive squad before, and and Conte's actually said that he prides himself on working with all players. 
uh, as in, or at least, you know, giving players an, an, an initial opportunity to prove themselves. And you're right, he is pretty ruthless if he decides he doesn't want a player. But I think it could be good news for some players who have been frozen out. For example, Deli Ali, for example, I don't know, Bergwijn, Doherty, um, Tanganga, whoever, Sanchez. Um, all of these players, I think he'll come in and he'll give everyone a clean slate and he'll say, look, I'm starting from, you know, day zero, day one, and prove yourself to me. If you perform, you'll be in the team. But as you say, I think that if it gets to January and it becomes clear that, you know, Deli Ali does not improve his performances, I think I think really the um, there could be a, a bit of a squad cull um, come January or at least come the summer um, because you're right, the, the, the kind of legacy of having changed managers obviously Nuno and then uh, Mourinho before that, is that there are numerous players that Mourinho and Nuno brought to the club who, you know, Mourinho and Nuno fancy, but Conte obviously might not be so keen on. And so it's difficult because when you when you change managers a lot, um, as Watford will be finding out, um, they the, the squad that you have is full of kind of players who are preferred by the previous bosses. So there are lots of players in that Spurs team who... You know, it might, might be fancy by Mourinho or Nuno, but but wouldn't be by Conte. And so I I think we can expect quite a large turnover of players, and probably even in January. I mean, the the bigger overhaul I would expect to be in the summer. But you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see four or five in and out uh, come the winter transfer window. Well, I'm hoping that because I know he can work miracles. But with a playing personnel that is on offer already, it needs an upgrade in many departments across the board, really. So I think. You'd have to imagine, or at least hope, from a Tottenham point of view, that promises would have been made, assurances almost, from the Paratici, Director of Football Connection, that's also there. So he's coming in to spend. I don't think he's necessarily a checkbook manager, by and large. I know he likes to spend money, but who, which manager doesn't in this day and age? But I think there's certainly going to be like a, a turbocharging of getting the Deadwood out and making Conte squad his own and not waiting for three windows, because he hasn't got that time to... Well, that luxury, because there's three windows and he's off, isn't he? So I think it needs to be six months for the first chunk and then see where we are in the summer. And then really, depending on how we have made progress, if any, in this second half of the season, it might be a case of, right, let's strap a rocket to it and see if we can kick on even further. But that's wishful thinking, because Max, I know you cannot wait any longer as we need to go to the Etihad. Palace busted many coupons up and down the country at the weekend with their incredible win over Manchester City. So the floor is now very much yours. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I've been waiting a long time for this. So, yeah, um, I would basically say don't bet against Palace in any game because, yeah, obviously we got outclassed completely by Chelsea in the first game of the season. That is the only game that we have not performed well in um, this season, I would say. And, you know, that includes uh, an away loss against Liverpool. Sure, we lost 3-0 three, three in that game, but we were very, very close in that game and we just kind of conceded three set pieces. And... I'm really, really glad that finally we've got that result over the line because, as I've said, you know, performances are one thing, but you do need to get points on the board and getting that victory over the line, particularly after we've been winning uh, very late on in games and kind of thrown it away by conceding a late or stoppage time goal, i.e. against Brighton, i.e. against Arsenal, it was really, really important for Palace to get that result over the line. And I think I'm really enthused by by the fact that Vieira learned from his previous mistakes. So against Arsenal, right, we were 
We were winning 2-1, uh, 10 minutes left, and he brings on James Tompkins, brings on, uh, takes off a forward and brings on Tompkins to play centre-back, and we go five at the back, four in midfield, one up top, right? We sit back super deep, we invite loads of pressure, eventually Arsenal score. Against okay, City at the Etihad, yeah, of course, they've got 10 men, so, you know, th- that has to be taken into consideration. But your are 1-0 up against City at the Etihad. Obviously, they're still, you know, probably favourites to, to at least have some chances towards the end of the game. 85th minute, he takes off defensive midfielder Kuyate and he brings on winger Michael Elise. Elise sets up the second goal that puts the game out of sight. And that is proactive, that's positive, that's learning from his previous mistake. And that is ruthless in saying, actually, I back us to score another goal here and kill the game off. And so even if they do manage to nick one at the end, it doesn't matter. We've already put ourselves out of sight. And, you know, he he backs Elise to make the most of that man advantage. And that really, really encourages me, as well as the performance as well, because we've actually beaten City at the Etihad under Roy Hodgson. Um, I think there are only two or three teams who have beaten City at the Etihad um, more than once. Um, in, in Guardiola's tenure, which which is really good as well. But I mean, we've beaten them before with a kind of a Hodgson style performance and, you know, a very low block and really good defensive work, all of which we saw at the weekend. But this was a different type of performance. This was a press them from the front kind of performance. And that's how we scored our first goal. You know, we pressured the centre back, won the ball back. And then, you know, we scored via that. So I'm I'm absolutely over the moon both with the performance and with the result. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking good good things are coming for Palace, which is which is fantastic. Matthew, the key flashpoint of the game was Eimerick Laporte sending off. It's hard to sort of say if it was a clear goal-scoring opportunity, but the referee certainly felt it was. Should he have been given his marching orders? I'm not a, I'm not 100% sure on this. Like, it's one of those I can, I can understand both sides because... He, he, it was, you know, it was a clear, it was a clear goal for, it was a clear goal, no, after, no, before Laporte dragged, before Laporte dragged him down. It was, a, it was a clear run, but at the same time, when you're that far away from the penalty area, is there realistically, and is there realistically a chance for, you know, one of the defenders to to track back? You know, Carl Walker was on the pitch at the time. I think, you know, he's one of the fastest players in the league. He could, in theory, track them down. There are three others. I think in that situation, had it been a yellow card, I don't think there would have been too many complaints, uh, you know, overall, even from even from Vieira and, and people of Palace Persuasion. But it, but I can also at the same time understand, you know, letter of the law, as it were, the giving a giving a red card. I think I think it is a, it's a, it is certainly an, it's a, it's an orange card. I think is one of the phrases that people like to use. I think it could it could easily have been given either way. Okay, well, I'll stay with you there, Matthew, because there was a similar flashpoint at the King Power. I think it was Johnny Evans and I think it was Aubameyang. It escapes me if it exactly was him, but similar in the sense that he hauled him to the grounds, but he didn't get his marching orders. Now, the way I saw it is that when the player gets pulled back and he's kind of an arm's length away to start with, that's the kind of obvious act of stopping the goal. But when you're tight to the attacker and you've kind of got him in a clinch and possession's not really won by either party and then you both go to ground... Is that really the same kind of foul? So is that how the Leicester incident wasn't a red card? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think yeah, as you mentioned, the, the 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 nature of the foul, as it were, with 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 the whole dragging back, I think does does add a, does add an element to it. So yeah, I think I think in that I think in that instance, you know, probably sh- probably should have been a red um, uh, should have been a red for Johnny Evans as well. 
in that yeah, as well in that situation. So, again, I'll stay with you very quickly, Matthew. Where's the consistency? I don't know. It's just uh, maybe it's maybe it's a big club bias in terms of various things. I, I, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. I think it's just I, I'm, I'm not I'm not 100 percent I'm not 100 sure. It's just it's just how the it's just how the referees are, and it's just is it really was it really the same exactly the same incident? Evans and the port. I'm not entirely convinced either way. That's just my view. Okay, that's absolutely fine. Let's move on. Let's go back to Max because Conor Gallagher. How hard is it to fall in love with a lone player? Because you kind of think, oh yes. He's something special, but he's not ours. Could he be yours come the summer if things keep going well? Yeah, um, this is this is the question because he, he's he's just an absolute star. Um, I can't speak highly enough of him, um, and he's so he's so crucial to the way that Vieira wants to play as well. That I'm I'm almost a little bit worried about what what happens, you know, when he's taken out of the team. Um, and yeah, he he's such a he's such a good player. I wonder, I re- I wonder whether um, Chelsea are gonna are gonna want him back because if he keeps playing like this, um, I can see him being a squad player for them next season. I think he has the talent to be a squad player for them next season. Um, it's just whether um, it's just whether they they feel like you know because they they might um, Tuchel might just want to like bang fifty mil down on a on a new centre mid. On, on whoever that might be. And then, you know, you've got Jorginho, Ballon d'Or contender, Kante, also a Ballon d'Or contender, Kovacic, who is a really, really good player. Um, obviously, Gilmore coming back as well. Um, you know, Saul, I don't imagine they're going to sign him, but he's just another player in the midfield ranks. Obviously, Barkley and Loftus-Cheek, they might not be able to shift. There are a lot of midfielders there for a system which only has two centre midfielders, right? So... I do wonder. I think he's good enough to be the third or maybe fourth choice centre mid, you know, a rotation option, play in the cup competitions kind of player for Chelsea. Um, It's just about, you know, for example, they might want to send Gilmore and Gallagher out on loan for one more season in the Premier League to get a bit more experience. Hopefully Palace would be top of that list again. Um, And then, uh, you know, and then maybe they'll they'll have him in, in two seasons time. Um, but I, I would just absolutely love us to sign him. So in a way, I kind of want him to be performing a little bit <laughs> less <laughs> strongly as he is at the moment, because when he's like eight or nine out of 10 every week, it's just kind of convincing Chelsea more and more that he's ready to go back and be a you know a, a regular or, or rotated Chelsea player. Whereas if he kind of performs at about six or seven out of 10 every week, that'd be good enough to make an impact for us, but also... You know, Chelsea might then feel that we can buy him for twenty or twenty-five or whatever million, and you know, I, I would just, if I were Palace and Chelsea were willing to sell, I would just put the money down and get him if we can. Yeah, I guess it all comes down to the player's preference as well. Do you want to be that bigger fish in that smaller pond? No disrespect at all, Max, but then you go to Chelsea and you mention names as Ross Barkley, Ruben Loftus Cheek. They're on the fringes. I know they've had minutes this season, but they are one of many options. And does Gallagher just become another to that list? And he might not get the minutes that he deserves at such an important age of his career. So it's, I guess it's all down to his decision and whether Chelsea want to let him go as well. But Matthew, in terms of the title race, I know it's a little early to be discussing champions and all that, but the City defeat hands a five-point margin at the top for Chelsea. So are we getting to that margin where Pep goes, do you know what, I might need a blockbuster signing in the new year? 
I, th- I, th- I think it is because we've seen, you know, with what Thomas Tuchel was able to do with them, you know, with Chelsea last year and their their incredible def- defensive record. You know, I can't remember how many games it was. And like, there, there was a long clean sheet record. I can't remember that. Or just incredible defensive record. I can't remember what it was exactly. Um, but you think it does start to come to a position where, right, they've got this five-point lead. Are they really going to let it go? And when you especially consider that, you know, Chelsea have still got to play, still got to play Man City, you know, you know again. Um, and we've seen Tuchel has managed to get the better of uh, Pep, um, Pep Guardiola on on a couple of occasions. You think right that that could effectively be an eight point gap when the when the two teams meet if you know they sort of uh, match blows as it were. So yeah, I think it is going to be that case of you know he is probably going to have to look for that for that big signing to try and close that gap. Do I see Chelsea slipping up? Yeah, they probably will. They probably will at some point, and Pep Guardiola is going to want to be there to capitalize on it. And you know, it. We know, we know, we know what Pep Guardiola. We know what Pep Guardiola is like when it comes to spending. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't rule it out. Who it's going to be precisely, I don't know. Whether or not they're going to be in a position to go after Harry Kane again, if that whole crops up in January, we don't know. But they'll certainly they'll certainly be in the market because I can't imagine Pep taking a five point like that, like that lying down, especially especially after a defeat like that to Palace. Absolutely, and Max, what have you made of the fact that City have failed to score twice at home this season in five league matches? So it's a small sample, but there's a little bit of concern there, isn't there? Drop points against Southampton, that being a nil nil draw, the defeat on Saturday, it's a Charge sheet, which probably wouldn't have happened last season with an Aguero, maybe a fit Ferran Torres. So it's, there's a little bit of sharpness being lost in attack, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, you know, that they've scored as many as as, as West Ham and, and kind of a fair amount less than, um, than, than Chelsea and Liverpool. And not that West Ham's attack is bad, but I mean, you know, at the start of the season, you would have said City's attack was significantly better than than West Ham's, even though they are a little bit imbalanced. And I think maybe that imbalance is part of it because they really don't have a recognised striker. I mean, Torres can play as a number nine and has been doing it for uh, Spain and increasingly for City. He's injured. Jesus is, I mean, the only like recognised striker at the club and Pep prefers him right wing. So even he's out of contention. De Bruyne and Foden can play there as can Sterling, you'd say, but they're not naturals in that position. And they seem to have six or seven really, really top quality kind of wingers slash attacking midfielders and pretty much zero strikers. And they did get away with it last year, but Liverpool are a lot stronger now that all, all their big players are fit again. And obviously Chelsea are a lot stronger, having had a bit more time to adapt to Tuchel, obviously Lukaku coming in. Um, they look defensively very very solid Chelsea so I think this you know I, I still do back City to bounce back um, and to be really in and amongst it at the end of the season but I don't think they're going to get away with winning the title as easily as they did last year um, because they they did kind of get away with it despite their imbalanced squad and I think maybe now it's catching up to them a little bit and you'd have to say they're not you know outright favourites for the title now because as you say um, it is obviously early in the season. There's a lot of points to be to, to, to be played for and a lot of games remaining. But five points off Chelsea, you know, the way Chelsea are playing, I can't see them losing two games in a row and that gap suddenly being shut down. Um, you know, they look very, very strong. And obviously Liverpool are in the mix as well. Well, Matthew, in terms of the team that are five points ahead of 
City, that being Chelsea, of course, they made light work of Newcastle in the end. But if you looked at it from a minute's point of view, that doesn't really tell the story of the actual play. I know it was kind of a late flurry, but really Chelsea were dominant throughout. Wing-backs again, getting joy in front of goal. Reese James hitting the net twice. Does this highlight how important the overall system is for Thomas Tuchel and Chelsea? Yeah, I think it does because it shows that you know goal, you know goals can come from anywhere. You know, we we had uh, Ben Chilwell with his uh, stretcher goals recently, including one for for England. And it, it, you know, if if you are going through a spell where you know your forwards aren't are getting it, aren't getting amongst the goals, then if your defenders and your midfielders and your you know attacking midfielders can chip in with goals from elsewhere during the process, then by all, then by all means go for it. It, it shows you know it shows you know a completeness. To the squad, so you know if one area is if one area is uh, not 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 firing, then another then another uh, team, another department rather, uh, can pick up can pick up the slack. So it it just goes to show what you know what a tremendous job that he's done that he's done at Chelsea. If you know in a situation like that, you know Reese James can come, can come up with two goals and you know could have could have been a hat trick. It was a penalty, but you know could have had a hat trick on the day. Just shows what what incredible players that he has to start off with, but also. Um, you know what a what a system he has that he's that these sort of players are able to flourish. Now, Max, in terms of Chelsea, and this might be a slightly controversial statement, but the way they're playing, the way I see it, no one's actually playing out of their skin in the way that when you look at Mo Salah, you think that is a player who's absolutely incredible and at the top of his game right now. Chelsea, it's more a case that everyone to a man is doing what they're asked to do, and the system is the thing which is ultimately proving dividends. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> that's that's quite a, that, yeah, that, that's quite a, um, that's quite an insightful uh, observation, I think, because you're right. Salah is playing out of his skin, probably the best player in the world right now, based on his performances. But you know, Robertson maybe hasn't been at his absolute best. They're still not sure who the right centre back next to. Uh, Van Dijk is, um, you know, they've got problems in midfield, both in terms of injuries and in terms of, you know, who, who's who's that final kind of piece of the jigsaw next to Fabinho and Henderson. Um, and then obviously the, their forward line is doing pretty well, but um, yeah, they're all kind of getting on a little bit. And so, you know, they might have a problem in a year or so. But with Chelsea, as you say, I don't think one player is 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 performing individually brilliantly, but every single player, every single role, um, you know, every single player seems to be so sure of what they're doing and and you know what the requirements of their role are. And even though the players are interchangeable, um, they, they they you know they seem to be able to make changes and rotate players without any seeming drop off in performance. And that is really really encouraging for Chelsea because. You know, I don't think Salah is going to carry on scoring at like more than one a game. I don't think he's going to score like 50 goals this season. At some point, presumably this season, his form is going to drop off a little bit slightly. And at that point, you know, Liverpool might not be winning games with the same kind of margin and, and ease as they are now. Um, but Chelsea, you can see just the results keep rolling in, rolling in. Um, just because of the, the the level of performances and the level of consistency across the players, you know, it's it's rare that a Chelsea player has a bad game. Whereas, for example, at Liverpool, you know, Trent can have a bad game defensively, but they get away with it because Salah scores an unbelievable winner. Um, whereas Chelsea, it seems to be everyone is just playing at a baseline of a really good, solid level of performance, and the team as a whole might, you know, collectively be a bit more cohesive. 
Now, Matthew, in terms of Newcastle, their Saudi takeover hangover is continuing, really. They're still searching for that first league win of the season. Graham Jones hasn't struck gold in that sense. Six points from safety. Are they at their absolute limit in terms of what they need to do for the January survival plan? Yeah, I, th- I, yeah, I think it's the the, the um, performances and where they are, and that you should really get alarm bells ringing. And we know that you know, we they they're making uh, progress in regards to appointing a manager because you know, Graham jo- Graham Jones is not a manager. He may be a very well regarded coach, but I think manager on a you know on a match day basis, I I, I don't think he's there. They're obviously making progress. That, you know, there's reports coming out today that Unai Emery is reportedly close. There was you know Paolo Fonseca's uh, name has been mentioned. So long they just they just need a manager, someone who can you know. As you know, as you said, with content, let's get them over the top when it comes to getting through a match day, and you know, actually sort them out, and maybe with enough connections and something to get them uh, through in January. Because you know, as things stand, you know, if, if you know if results go against them this weekend, they could in theory be nine points away from safety. And whilst you know, teams have done have come back from that have come back from that before, you just think. Even with what they are able to do, would there be any player, not even like the Mbappe stuff and all that nonsense, but like James Tarkovsky has been has been mentioned as someone to jump to Newcastle. If they are nine points from safety in January, would someone like him, you know, even consider moving to Newcastle, knowing the relegation is, you know, not, not a near post, you know, a near certainty at that point. Um, you, know, you know, probably not. So I think the, you know, the alarm bell should be ringing. That should sort of get them into action because the longer that this goes on, the longer they, you know, carry on, you know, not picking up results, the worse it is going to look for them in terms, in terms of the January transfer window. And then if they can't get the players that they need, that could really set the, you know, the Newcastle project back two or three years in effect. So they, so they need to do something and they need to do something quickly. Well, Max, that's something quickly. Could be Unai Emery before the weekend. We didn't mention that name at all in all our Newcastle manager chat, so it's caught us on the hop, but sometimes this happens in terms of slightly more left-field choices. What do you make of the former Arsenal manager being installed potentially at St James's Park? Yeah, yeah, this, this is a bit of an interesting shout, right? Because he was, uh, you know, fairly or unfairly, a little bit of a, a kind of a figure of fun at, at, at the Emirates, you know, particularly from rival fans, but also... The, his his own fans at the club um and i think a lot of it was unfair because he his start at arsenal kind of mirrored um quite closely um arteta's start at arsenal in terms of numbers at least and then it seemed like there was a little bit of a drop off in performances but you know i'm not i'm still not convinced that um i'm still not convinced that arteta has made them significantly better i think you know, he, he's brought through Smithrow and Saka a little bit more. And, you know, the, the recent acquisitions have have really helped them improve. For example, Ramsdale, um, Tommy Arsu, players like that. But, um, yeah, I think maybe he, the, the, the criticism of Emery was was probably a little bit harsh. And a lot of the, the kind of mockery made of him was just because of the fact he was Spanish and he, and he spoke English a little bit funny. And I think that, that's just hugely unfair. Um, just to kind of mock someone for their for their linguistic skills, he could have done what Bielsa does and just have a, had a translator. Not not there's anything wrong with that, but I mean he, he he was kind of making an effort to 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 speak in yeah. in the language of his of of, of the foreign country, and then, and then you know people just kind of would laugh at him because of his accent. Really, I think that's probably a little bit unfair, um, as opposed to criticising him for 
you know, his management or the performances of his team. And there, there were warranted criticism there. I'm not saying you're not allowed to criticise anyone, obviously, but I think it should be based on the football, <laughs> if, you, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, he, he, he'd done a good job before he went to Arsenal. It's obviously why they hired him. And he's done a very, very good job at um, Villarreal, I think it is as well. And and he's really, um, he, he's won trophies there. I think he won the Europa League three times in a row or something like that, or at least he got to the final three times in a row. So he is he is a winner um, and, and he has got pedigree at, at, at his previous clubs. And he has done a, a pretty good job um, with, with with his current team as well. So I think he could he could well be a good appointment for for Newcastle and if he does go there I hope that fans in England at least give him cut him a little bit more slack and kind of at least give him the give him the respect to judge him on his team and his team's performances yeah I think he'll get the respect in Newcastle I mean they respected Rafa didn't they to an incredible degree and he's still loved up here I mean there was reports that potentially they might even go for him and break the bank but you know I think in that microcosm of the top six you're under the microscope just that little bit more I think Newcastle we might actually be a club which allows him just to get on with the job and not be under such a scrutiny of good, good evening and all that. Do you know what I mean? It's just all that nonsense. It might be the fit that no one expected but might work well in the end. If he does take over against Brighton, that's the weekend. And talking of Brighton, Matthew, we shouldn't really forget their shock result of the weekend. They drew two all at Liverpool. So last week we mentioned Brighton regression because they lost to Man City and we thought, oh, do you know what? Good start, but it's going to taper off now. That's a bit of humble pie going to be served up for us all, I reckon. I think, I think, I think it is. Um, although I think this this isn't to take away from Brighton. I don't, I don't want to do this, but this isn't to take away from Brighton. But I do also think that Liverpool played their part in it with their their injury situation that's going on in midfield. And I think you no know, losing Navigator early on really. Uh, really did cost them. So let's put that aside. I want to taper it to some extent. But yeah. overall, in the grand scheme, yes, you have to give Brian credit for coming for coming back. You know, Liverpool after the you know after the run they've been on, you know, putting five past Man United the week before, being after they come Madrid. You know, they're, 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 they are still they are still a very good side even with their problems. So for for so for Brighton to come back and you know get and get something from from that game, and, you know, it, it wasn't. As if they sort of, you know, fluked their way to it. You know, the goals were, you know, the goals were pretty impressive, and the overall performance was pretty impressive. So I think, you know, there has to be some credit, um, well, a lot of credit, I think, uh, passed on to Graham, uh, Graham Potter there. And, you, know, you know, as you hinted, we've sort of written them off. You know, it could be a fluke, but I, I still want, to, I still want to hold out to. I, I want to see this, you know, go on beyond, you know, for the rest of the season. But I do think there has to be some credit given to, uh, given to Potter for, for the job he's done so far. Well, Max, in instances such as this, when a smaller team in the league gets a scalp of any kind in the Premier League away from home, there's always a notion that the bigger team has played badly. Was that the case on Saturday? Because if you look at the first half, what, 40 minutes of that, Liverpool were flying. They had two goals in the net. I think they had another disallowed. It should have really been all three points. And if you look at the context of this title race, which is emerging, that could also be two massive points dropped for Jurgen Klopp's men. Yeah, it could well be. It could well be. And, you know, as you say, if they'd have hung on to that, they'd, they'd have been one point behind Chelsea. They are, they are obviously still unbeaten, but, um, you know, four, four of those 10 games have been draws, almost all of them. Um, and I really, really don't want to go on about it, but Palace could have easily, easily drawn that, that game at Anfield as well. It's still bitter. Uh, so, it's still bitter. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> still not got over it yet. But, um, yeah, I, I think that they, they would... Um, 
they would have wanted to win that game and they definitely had the chances to. But, you know, as much as I hate to say, I think Brighton were, were good value for the point. They do often um, play really well against the, the really top teams. It's just, as you say, that level of consistency, uh, managing to, to kind of keep up that level of performance for every game in the season. And if they did do that, you know, they might finish around where they are now in eighth. As I suspect they might, they might fall a little bit lower. Um, but it was a really good performance from them. And, and yeah, I think I, I don't think Liverpool could say, you know, it was, it was an outrageously uh, unfair result. Matthew, to catch you on the hop, you haven't got the England rattle on you by any chance? Uh, no, I do not. No, why? Who are we, who are we trying to... Oh, I'm just trying to who are we, why? Who are we going for? Well, if you pretend to have a rattle in your hand, Jared Bowen in November, would you put him on your England coach for those World Cup qualifiers? Um, tell you what, I can... I can I, uh, let's see if I can... There you go. Like it, like it, like it. <laughs> Quick clap. That's the best I can come up with right now. Well, so I thought we went away from the rattle. I thought it was kazoo time. Am I, am I right? Am I, whatever whatever it is, I don't have the musical instrument to hand. Um, but on that note, yes, I think Jared Bowen is doing um, doing, in, in, incredib- in, doing incredibly well um, for the season. I think like we had with a couple of players you know, towards the end, I think at the end of last season, I know we were talking about the likes of Jack Harrison and um, there are a couple of uh, Harvey Barnes, I think, was in the mix as well. You know, there are a couple of players who've got a lot of um, work ahead of them. Ignore the phone going off in the background. Yeah, no there's, there's, there's a musical instrument. Right <laughs> there. Yeah, whilst there, um, um, there, there's going to be a lot of competition for places, but I think if Jarrah Boa can keep up the way the way he's going and how he's doing. You know, if you want to have, you know, big club bias, as it, not big club bias, but, you know, performing at the top end of the table bias as well, I think Bowen might be able to might be able to sneak his way in. Probably not as a starter, but certainly as a squad member. Well, Max, it's certainly been a good week for West Ham. A big win on Sunday against Aston Villa. Well, actually quite a routine win, if we're honest, but a bigger win in the Cup on Wednesday. Was it Wednesday? Tuesday? Midweek, show I say. I can't remember the day exactly. But more importantly, it means that Man City's vice-like grip of the Carabao Cup has finally been removed and another team can win it this season. Could it even be West Ham? Yeah, it could well be. It could well be because, you know, City have got such a good record in that competition that if West Ham can beat them, they can beat anyone. And I think West Ham will look at any game in any competition and think they've got a real shot of winning it, which just kind of underlines the... Uh, the, the fantastic job that Moyes has done. And yeah, they're, they're just such a, a strong team now all round. Um, on Bowen, I think he has been doing well. I can't see him getting into the England squad. I think it's just a bit unfortunate that England have just such a wealth of options um, on the wing. You know, Sterling and Sancho, Grealish, Foden, Southgate likes playing in there, Rashford coming back now, Saka as well. And I don't think Bowen's better than, than you know those six. He is a good player, of course, um, and and if he keeps up his performances and you know c- contributes a lot to, to to West Ham, maybe qualifying for the Champions League, then there's maybe more of a chance of it happening. I can't see it personally, but yeah, West Ham have have done pretty well. And actually, you know the way they're going in the Europa League, <laughs> they haven't faced any massive teams yet, of course, and you know it'll obviously get harder as they progress through the competition. Um, but I can I can see them winning a domestic cup this season potentially. You know, maybe even challenging for the Europa League if they carry on this form. Um, and yeah, they, they just look a completely different beast now. Matthew, with West Ham being as they are on this upward trajectory that keeps going on and on, Declan Rice arguably in the form of his career 
are these two parties kind of meeting each other in the middle and there's not necessarily a clamour for Rice to move on? I know there's always going to be a Man United or a Chelsea lurking in the shadows, but right now, things are great at the London Stadium. So really, with the money that is, I think, also being promised by a new Czech owner, Rice is on the menu in East London. Yeah, I, I very much think so. I think it, it, it's it's all worked out perfectly. You know, it, you know, Declan Rice wanted to leave because he wanted to play European football. Well, now he's getting it at West Ham. You know, it's not inconceivable that they could finish in the top top six again and be in European football again next season, even even if it's in the Europa League. You know, say it quietly, but you know, as Max sort of hinted out, could they go on and win the Europa League? I you, you can't rule them out based on the form they've had this season, which would then be a which would then be a route into the Champions League. So if he can get everything that he you know, it's a case of did he want European football or did he want Champions League football? I think that's sort of a like a qualifier in there. Yeah. But if he was just playing in Europe and you know playing on a on a bigger stage, then yeah, absolutely, this is this is exactly what. You know, this is exactly what he what he what he asked for. Well, again, if it is Champions League football specifically, then there may be something uh, we, that would need to be addressed further down the line, whether or not West Ham can you know, actually do it. But you know, based on what West Ham have done over the past over the past year and looked like they're doing, and as you mentioned, the investment could get them the the players to take them over the top and into uh, the top four. Probably, maybe not on a regular basis, but at least contending. Then, yeah, it could very well be the case that, despite all the offers that you know you mentioned, Man United, Chelsea, um, I'm sure many other players, uh, teams have won him. Then, yeah, then if that's the case, then there's really no reason for him to leave. Now, Max, West Ham got the better of Aston Villa. Villa have lost the last four in the league. Is there any pressure starting to build on the shoulders of Dean Smith as the Western Midlands outfit are starting to just tumble down the league slightly? Yeah, I think that, that their recent form has been a little bit concerning. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, that the injuries haven't helped them. Um, and obviously, kind of Bailey is just getting back into fitness. They're still adapting to life without Grealish, of course. I think all of the their problems can be laid at his door, but he's obviously a fantastic player. And even though they've spent a fair amount of money replacing him with the likes of you know, Bailey and Buendia and then strengthening their attack with Ings. I, I just don't quite think they've worked out their their best team. I think probably their best team is with four at the back, um, you know, regulation fullbacks and then maybe a 4-2-3-1 with, for example, Bailey, Buendia, you know, Watkins or Traore behind Ings. But they're still kind of getting a couple of players back to fitness. They're still trying to figure figure things out um, and I think once once they are back to full strength you know they, they've definitely got the quality to survive but it will be really concerning for Villa that they have of course they sold Grealish but they they have really reinvested that money and you know Villa are they're only three points clear of the relegation zone having had a, a pretty reasonable run of fixtures and you know they would have wanted to have improved from last season um, when they, you know, I think they finished eighth or ninth or something, and, and they did pretty well. Um, and they, they seem to have regressed a little bit. I think maybe the result of the weekend is a little bit of a false result in terms, at least, of uh, when Concert got sent off and you're down to 10 men. Obviously, West Ham punished that numerical uh, um, disadvantage for Villa. And so, you know, kind of obviously went on and then scored four. And so that result. Um, by itself look, looks pretty bad. Had Villa had 11 men the, the whole game, and I'm not saying Con Concert shouldn't have been sent off, you know, because it was a really silly tackle. But um, 
had they had 11 men the whole game, I don't think it would have been so convincing a loss. It might have been 2-1. They might have even got themselves back into the game. You just don't know. And then in that situation, um, you know, a 4-1 defeat uh, to, to mark four consecutive losses wouldn't have been such a bad result. And, you, you know, might they might even have got a draw or nicked a win or something. But as it is, their form has been pretty poor and, uh, and Dean Smith will be concerned, as will the club. But I think they're still kind of adapting a little bit, figuring out their best formation to, to, and their best system to make the most of the new players they have. A couple of players coming back from injury, so I think they'll be all right. Now, in terms of pressure, Matthew, Rafa Benitez, because their bright start at Everton has dissipated rather quickly also. They've only got one point from the last 12. Is this the sticky situation that we all expected Everton to find himself in eventually? Yeah, I, yeah, I think it is because you know, even though Carlo Ancelotti left them in a, in a reasonably good position last year, it, there was obviously still a lot of work that needed to be uh, needed to be done when it came when it came to Everton. And you know, Benitez, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I, 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 I no. Inherited inherited a bit of a difficult situation, as so we probably expected this to come. Did we expect it to come this early or this at this point of the season? Probably not. But I just think when you consider the um, you know, the additional pressure that's you know, been placed upon him uh, because of his you know links to um, his links to Liverpool and the fan reaction when he was appointed and everything, I think that may just sort of slightly be playing his part. I think if this was any other manager. Um, I don't think the you know the, the pressure and everything would would necessarily be on it, but I think because of because he started started from a bad position, as it were, I think that that's going to sort of ramp up the uh, controversy a little bit more, just because they know that you know the, not all the fans really took to him, so no, those fans wouldn't necessarily be wouldn't necessarily be uh, downhearted if they decided to change managers what four months into the season. Yeah, with his former Liverpool link, it's always going to be an easy scapegoat if things go wrong. Just like Nuno, in the sense that because he wasn't ever anywhere near the first choice, as soon as things get bad in terms of results, it's very easy to sort of say, well, we don't want him, he was never our man in the first place. So, as you say, Matthew, quite correctly, that additional pressure of the circumstance of the job being taken is not helping him at the moment because that defeat or the defeats that have happened recently are being magnified even further. So let's wrap up the rest of the weekend very quickly. Saturday got us underway at the King Power. Arsenal are in the groove right now. Seven unbeaten in the league. They're in the top six. That kind of trusting of the process is slightly paying off. But Matthew, the one thing that I think we could all take from that game was the incredible Ramsdale save. What did you make of that? Yeah, I, th- I thought it was fantastic. And I've, I've been racking my brains all week since that, you know, past couple of days because, you know, I've, I've made a point on the spot that I didn't think Aaron Ramsdale was, you know, the kind of ask, the, call, the kind of goalkeeper that Arsenal really needed. And I've been proven wrong. I think it's now officially been proven wrong. With this. So I've been racking my brains to see if there's anything that I was actually right on. But for the life of me, I can't <laughs> think of it to try and say, no, but it's OK because I was right on this and I can't. But, you know, in all seriousness, I think you know, he's done he's done he's done incredibly well. Um, yeah. In terms of in terms of the actual save itself, I'm seeing people saying like it's the it's you know, it's one of the best saves in Premier League history. I wouldn't necessarily go that far. Um, I, it's 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 certainly it's certainly in contention, certainly arguably. You know, it, it reminded me of uh, uh, the David James uh, free uh, free kick save uh, when he was down at Portsmouth back circa 2007. I want to say it reminded me of that. Um, but yeah, it, it's certainly a top one. But I wouldn't say it was like one of the greatest. So again, not taken away from him, but I just think there have been better. Max, is it held in a high regard because it hits the bar as well? Anything which sort of classes the woodwork, a goal could be in the same 
kind of criteria where it always looks better if it smashes in off the bar and bounces a bit first. So is the save higher because it's hit the woodwork also? Yeah, yeah, the the Yaboa edition thing. Yes, that's you, it. That there we about. go. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I, I think that it, that did definitely help. Um, but equally, I think the follow up save as well might be might be the one that um, that kind of really cements it in the in the history books. As Matthew said, I don't think it's up there as one of the best saves in Premier League history. I think that might be a little bit far, but it's definitely a contender for definitely save of the season no doubt and part of that for me is the save from the rebound because not only does he just kind of lie on the floor admiring his previous save he's up really quickly to then smother that shot from uh, the rebound from Evans and even though he had a little bit of help with Partey clearing off the line subsequently I think he did really well to recover and a lot of the the work that goalkeepers do um, you know that I see goalkeepers training on is okay yeah sure make the first save but then get up back into your position, back into the centre of the goal, ready to make the next one because, you know, there's always the risk of a, of a rebound happening. So I think that really elevates it above, you know, a good save to, to a great save, maybe. Later that afternoon, Burnley picked up their first victory of the season. They're still in the bottom three, Max, but a win is always going to be welcomed. Yeah, very much, very much. And it was a really good performance as well. And, you know, Brentford have been, have been really solid this season. And Burnley... They do show it very rarely, but they can play some nice football. Um, you know, the goal, uh, the build-up uh, in t- for, for, for Lowton's goal, I believe, was really, really nice. Um, Chris Wood is clinical as ever. He's a good player. And Corne looks a real, real find for them. And it seems strange to me, at least, that a player who's playing in the Champions League for Lyon and, you know, beat City, um, I think, twice in, in, the, in, in the last couple of years... Um, then went, you know, up up north to, to Lancashire, not to be anti-Northern or anything, but um, and, and kind of moved to Burnley when I, I would have imagined that, that potentially bigger and better teams would have been in for him. But fair play to Burnley in identifying him. I think they signed him for like under 14 million or something, which is a, a great signing for, for a kind of player of his talents. And he's made such a fantastic start. Um, he, he scored a couple of goals already and he looks a real, real good player. It was a really good finish, and that is potentially the win to kickstart their season. Matthew, in terms of Southampton, it looks like their season has been kickstarted. The win over Watford means it's now seven points from the last nine. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's it's. It, I don't want to say the house noodle bounce, but it it, it, it is it, the house bounce is similar to the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer cycle, as it were. Just when you think that there's enough enough pressure on him to you know whether or not there's going to be anything about his job, then all of a sudden. A couple of results, a couple of results kick in, and all of a sudden everything is, is is hunky dory. And whether or not this time is going to be any different, we'll just have to wait and see. But it at least takes them away from the bottom three, and at least should, you know, for the most part, you know, moving forward, take any you know lingering threat of any potential relegation or anything should take that mind, you know, completely out of their mind. So yeah, good for them. And finally, Max Leeds got the better of Norwich, and what was a frenetic second half at least. But with the way Norwich are performing in the main, I guess anything less than a win for Leeds would have been rather disappointing for Marcelo Bielsa. Yeah, very much. And especially considering the position that Leeds are, they've had a pretty shaky start to the season. As I say, I do, and as, as I've said before, I do think they'll be all right and they'll, their performances kind of regress towards the mean a little bit. And as they get some players back from injury, they will return more to where their real level is, which is, I think, probably mid-table. 
Um, but at the same time, they'd only won one game in the league before the weekend, and Norwich will really feel they had a chance um, to make the most of that performance um, and, and finally get a result or, or, you know, get at least a draw if they didn't manage the win. And I think that will be really, really damaging for, for Daniel Farker and his side. Yeah, we spoke about Farker last week. Nothing's really changed in terms of his employment prospects and the long-term security of that. But he seems to be relatively safe. But can he get a tune out of a Premier League team or Norwich in general? Because one failure, he's failing again. There's a lot of loyalty there. But I think Norwich might have to be a bit more brutal and cut the apron strings. And really, the, the one thing I learned from that game, Norwich-Leeds, I only saw match of day two, was Bielsa's 3-1-3-3 formation. Just no width at all, just really down the, down the middle. Quite stunning, that match, do you not think? Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I can't imagine any other team in the league playing that formation, and, and it shows the kind of the tactical versatility that his players have, and it shows how kind of unique he is as a manager that that they play that kind of system. At the same time, I think that that's also kind of proven by the fact that they they don't have any fit fullbacks basically. <laughs> um, obviously, Ailing is out, and and Fierpo is out as well. Who would tend to play left back and right back if they were playing a kind of a more traditional four one four one. But yeah, it's really interesting, and and I I, I just love watching these play. The, the games are always so so fascinating to watch. Matthew, very very quickly, has Lionel Messi been a flop for PSG so far? I'll be really honest. I stopped paying attention to PSG no. once they do my ten thousand pounds. <laughs> Stop it! I hope they lose every game. <laughs> right on that note, that's the admin coming up right because we need to do the uh, thank you of the two Podsquad members. Max, a sterling effort as always. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Yeah, thank you very much. And Matthew, thanks for wearing the captain's armband this week. A pleasure to chat to you once more. Sure, pleasure as always. Absolutely. Right, cheers guys and also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.